Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with four-time Major League All-Star Dante Bichette. Break a leg. Have a good show. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a four-time All-Star and was a prominent member of the Colorado Rockies Blake Street Bombers. Ladies and gentlemen, Dante Bichette. Dante, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, thanks for having me, buddy. It's good to hear from you. That was good. Uh, We got to catch up a few weeks back, and uh, we we touched on this a little bit, but I want to touch on it for the audience. Bat flips. Okay. <laughs> Bat flips. All right. Now, Dante, it's amazing. And you probably hear it from when, when you're out and about. And uh, people always tell me, you know, my time in Seattle early in my career, I didn't do it. But later, you know, it kind of turned into this thing and I had fun with it. And, and my teammates loved it. Maybe the opposing pitchers didn't like it sometimes. But but there was no harm by me. I came up with that. And people always tell me, oh, you know, especially now it's it's 15, 20 years later. Oh, you were the original bat flip guy. And I, say, I always say this, and this is truth. I always say, I'm telling you, Dante was doing something before me. And he had the hand thing. And I kind of looked at his. I liked his. Mine was different than yours. But but I always remind people, I said, check out Dante Bichette in the, uh, in the 90s. He started doing a little thing with his fingers, and he kind of like, get off me ball, and he'd kind of walk away. How did <laughs> yeah. you come up with that? Yeah. When did you start doing it? And, oh, uh, man, you do not want to know how. Okay, I do. Tell you, I do. When, d- during the strike year, I used to play foosball, like try to play professionally. And, and during the strike year, I was playing foosball. And the signature move when you hit a shot is you kind of recoil. And so as soon as we broke camp, that's my, the next home run I hit, I kind of recoiled. I didn't mean to. And I was like, bam, I recoiled. And, uh, and I remember Chris Berman saying he hit that ball so hard. He scared himself, you know? And and I was like, it just kind of became a thing. It even, it even had its own nickname. Marvin Freeman gave it a nickname called the Shucky Ducky. So that's where it all began. Yeah, and and uh, no, I remember. You know, we come into Colorado, and I'm like, Dante hits a home run. He's going to do that little thing. Um, but it was interesting. You look at the guys today, and we did our thing, and we had fun with it. Uh, I'm asked about those bat flips today, and I they said they, they expect me to say, "Oh, I love the bat flips." I I got to be honest, the modern day bat flip, I really don't like it. <laughs> it's too premeditated no. for me. It's too, let's see, yeah. we thought about it and there's nothing natural. It's not a part of anybody's swing. You know, I, I think of the original style points for hitting a home run. To me, the epitome of it is at Ken Griffey Jr. When he hit it and he's just kind of that one-handed walk to first. I loved it. And I always, mine was kind of the way I got rid of my bat. And then, then I added a little bit to it. Yours was similar. It was a recoil. It was as soon as you hit it, it was just get that bat out of your hands and go. It wasn't like I just hit a bomb. Okay. Now what am I going to do with the bat? Because I have to bat flip and I, and I see some of them today, not all. And I think there's just too much thought. It's almost like you got to think about it after you hit the homer. So I'm not a big fan of the bat flip and people would think that I am a fan. No, you're so right. It, it's all premeditated. It can't be like that. 
I always felt when Griffey hit his, it looked like he he would he would his finish was kind of like I'm so tired of hitting homers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> you know, and uh, to me, yeah, it's got you've got to be able to hit the homer and do the bat flip without embarrassing the pitcher, without showing anybody up, but at the same time letting everybody know you know you got it, and that's the right, trick, you know. See, that's really breaking it down. People don't break it down that way. That's a good way of putting it. Because I never wanted to show up a pitcher. I never stood there and watched. I, I would kind of boom, flip, and I'm on my way to first. Now, some pitchers are going to take exception. Whatever. Hit me. Okay. Then we do it again, and it's back and forth. But you're right. I, I mean, it's like I, I. my team loves it. My teammates love it. Maybe you don't love it, but I don't want to stand here and make you look too bad. At the same time, I got to let everybody know that's watching that you don't have to watch where this ball is going to land. I think it's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, young Dante Bichette, you grew up in, in West Palm Beach. Um, what was what was a young Dante Bichette? What did you like as a child? What was your childhood like? Was it always baseball? Were there other sports? You know, I walked on a baseball field. At, I was watching actually Reggie Jackson hit a home run in a playoff or World Series game. I was 10, and I asked my mom, what the heck is this going on here? Because this guy just hit a ball over the fence, and he got to jog, and everybody's cheering for him while he's jogging. What the heck is this? I'm seriously, this is how it went down. And my mom said, oh, that's baseball. They do that for a living. And my immediate thought was, oh, I'm going to do that for a living. <laughs> and and she took me the very next day. I was playing little league baseball. I signed up, and my team had a game that day. And uh, and the rest is history. Now I didn't realize what I was in for, but it turned out pretty good, I guess. <laughs> Growing up in that in that part of the country, you know, it's it's a spring training site. And I always I'm interested in this people that grow up in Arizona that grow up in in uh, Florida. Do you grow up? going to spring training games. Who was your team? Yeah, my team was the Braves, like the Expos, too, because they were both in West Palm Beach. But we had the Braves, you know, on, on WTBS, America's team. I could, I, I could tell you the whole team. Uh, with Horner being the big slugger, Murphy, I love Murph. I love Shambliss, Hubbard, Rafael Ramirez, Bruce Benedict, Claude L. Washington, the whole bunch of them, man. That was my team I watched. Jerry Royster, even though he was uh, – part-time player was one of my favorite players and I ended up being coached by him. I was actually there on the team with Dale Murphy when he retired. And uh, so, I, I mean, that's, that's the team I grew up with and it was a good team. It was, uh, you know, they had the one playoff appearance, but they were fun to watch. So that's, that was my introduction to it all. Jupiter high school. Um, you went there, you, you will have, you'll go on after that uh, to junior college what was high school like for you? How good of a player were you in high school? Were you a guy that, that blossomed later, or were you that standout kid that everybody came to the game and knew this is what you were going to do for a living? Yeah. Uh, I had a scholarship to the University of Miami as a football player. I had no scholarships as a baseball player. And that's just because I was big and strong and fast. But I wasn't a very good baseball player. I was definitely a late bloomer. I had, I had to walk on at a junior college. And uh, that whole fiasco was kind of funny because because uh, my coach took me in, and I, if you got a minute, I'll explain how I got into junior college. And it was like a it was like two at bats in my career's 
either going to be good or over. But my coach takes me to the junior college, my little league coach. He says, hey, coach, we want, we got, I got a kid he wants to try out. And the, and the coach, Frank Cacciatore, who's, you might even know Frank. He's been a coach in the, in the MLB for a long time, but he was a junior college coach for Palm Beach Junior College. And he said, well, we just had our team. Uh, the team's made. Everybody's cut. Unless he's a catcher, we don't really have a spot because we lost, lost a catcher to the January draft. Remember, they used to have that January draft. Right. There were and, two. Uh, yeah. So he and my coach looked at him. My Lily coach looked at him. He goes, "That's what he is. He's a catcher." And I looked at my Lily coach. And I said, "I might have caught one game in my life, but I didn't say nothing." You know. So he goes, "I tell you what. You show up at 4 a.m. tomorrow morning, and we'll give you a look." I said, "4 a.m." He goes, "Yeah, we start Hell Week tomorrow." Now, fast forward. I talked to him. He said, "I didn't think you'd show up, but sure enough, I showed up at 4 a.m. Ran for about two hours." And then he says, well, we got a game tonight at 4.30, starting at 4.30, and you're catching. And, and some of these guys ended up in the big league. Jeff Fisher was on that team. Um, another big leaguer on that team. Robbie Thompson. Robbie Thompson, year before. Yeah. yeah. So I'm out there, and the first ball they throw me, and I'm, I'm first of all, I'm catching, and everything's going to the backstop, and I can't catch anything. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm out of here. But I get two at-bats. One's off Jeff Fisher, who played in the big league. And the first ball I hit, I smashed. As soon as I hit it, the left fielder caught it. It was hit that one of the hardest ball I probably hit to this day. And the next time up, I hit that took their top reliever into the darkness. They still talk about that ball. And after the game, you know, I'm, I'm chasing balls at a backstop, but I hit two balls good. I figure these guys do that a lot. And I go up to the coach. He goes, he goes, you know what? You're not a catcher. And I'm like, I'm bumming. He goes, but damn, you can hit. We're going to keep you anyway. So that was my, that's how I made the junior college team. I couldn't imagine that. So in high school, what are you? What are you predominantly? What's your position? I'm a shortstop like every other, you know. Like guy, everybody else, like, right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I think I got cut my sophomore year. My junior year, I kind of sat the bench a little bit. My senior year, I played a little bit. But, you know, it wasn't. No, I, I wasn't a real good player. I didn't understand the game at all back then. That would have been me, though. If you went, if you put me behind the plate and I had to fake it even for a minute that I was a catcher, I, I have no chance of pulling that off. I still, to this day, you put me behind, me behind the plate and a mask on me. It's, it's the closed eyes thing. I, I couldn't do it. Trust me, um, I, did, I didn't pull it off. <laughs> 1984, um, you drafted by the Angels in the 17th round. Uh, and you're off to the minor leagues. Now, this is where this is the California Angels that spring trained in Palm Springs. Uh, Gene Autry's the owner of the Angels. And there's got to be a Bob Boone. You had to run into Bob Boone at some time during those years. I think dad was there from, uh, I think it was 82 or, yeah, 82 to 88. So you had yeah. to, I got I to get a Bob Boone story out of you. Well, your dad was amazing because, you know, he took care of, he, I don't even know if he remembers this, but he would give me rides. He'd take care of me. And the thing I remember about your dad is your dad was probably the oldest guy in the team. And he would be blocking balls after the games uh, like, like he was 18 years old. I mean, this guy's your dad was a workaholic, man. I mean, he just freaking got after it. So I always appreciated that about him but he took care of me i wonder if he even remembers that stuff i know this when i retired he called me and i worked for him a little bit with the nationals so maybe maybe he remembered a little bit 
So you go. All right. So now you're you're going to now. What are you going into pro ball as outfielder? You know what? No, my first professional game. Even though I played, I played outfield in junior college. My scout put me in as a shortstop again. So my first professional game was at shortstop. Now I'm six, you know, two two hundred and fifteen pounds. Back then, those kind of guys didn't play shortstop. So you'd be I short. You'd be short now. You'd be one of the yeah, smaller you guys. Would be <laughs> tiny. <laughs> you, so I played one game at shortstop and got one ground ball, and then the next game I played at third base, and the next game I played at first base, and I think eventually I worked my way into right field in a couple years in a minor league. So right field was probably where I fit best. I was a pretty good outfitter when I was younger, and then blew my knee out later on. But you know those things happen. <laughs> 1988, you get. Uh, your first cup of coffee, you get 46 ABs, you hit 261. Uh, 89, you're getting a few more ABs. 1990, they give you 250 at bat, you hit 15 home runs. And uh, I believe after the 90 season, you get traded to Milwaukee Brewers for Dave Parker. Uh, at this stage yeah. of your career, what do you think? I mean, this is before before you become the Dante Bichette, everybody, all the baseball fans out there know. But at this stage of your career, what's going through your mind? What kind of player are you? What kind of what are you thinking going forward? You know, at that stage in my career, I thought I was a a certain type of player, and I really wasn't. I thought I was going to be more of just a power guy. You know, just I'm going to hit a ton of home runs, and and you know the average is what it is, and that's kind of where it was heading. I didn't care about the strikeouts. And I made one of the biggest mistakes in my career going in my first year in Milwaukee because they gave me the everyday job. And they said, we don't care how many times you strike out. Hit, we just want you to hit 25, driving about 85, and you're good to go. And, and at the All-Star break, I had 12 and I think 42, 45 RBIs, which is right on pace. But I was hitting about 230, 240. And they said, well, we're going to give somebody else a shot. And I was like – Oh, okay. And what I really learned there was, you know, that one home run a week or, you know, every four or five games, there's a lot of at-bats in between those home runs, man. And you got to figure out a way to find in the lineup. So from that point on, the next year, for me, it was all about finding a way in the lineup tomorrow night. If I can just get in the lineup tomorrow night. And that, that meant I had to get hits. So that's when I kind of changed my game the second year in Milwaukee and really found myself kind of who I was. I didn't hit as many home runs that year, but that eventually came back too. Yeah, it's it's amazing because everybody doesn't go the route, especially the way it ended up for you. Uh, usually the guys like a Dante Bishop, they start off and, and they're they're given the job and you're an everyday player in pretty much your whole career. But you're you start off, you're getting some ABs with Anaheim. Now you're getting more playing time. Go to Milwaukee, get the job. You get it taken away from you. Uh, it's an interesting story because now you're fighting for ABs. So you know what it's like kind of to be a regular and to be a guy that's trying to get in that lineup any way he can. Uh, so you kind of lived both lives early in your career. Uh, night after 1992. Now, that off season, as everybody knows, uh, because I had just made my, you know, my cup of coffee in Seattle was that 1992 season. And there was so much um, hype around the, the expansion draft. And it was the Florida Marlins and the Colorado Rockies coming in. And it was that off season. 
you know, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I still remember that name, David Need. Need was the number one overall pick. Yeah, yeah. And but that's not how you got to Colorado. You didn't get drafted in the expansion draft. I think after the expansion draft, I think Rhyme didn't uh, didn't yeah, Reimer yeah. get picked, and then you were flipped for him. Ended up you going to Colorado. So what happened? Don Baylor was my hitting coach in Milwaukee. He got the managing job. He said, I want, he told uh, Bob Gebhardt, the GM, I want Bichette. I was, I was protected. So what they did was, is, is Bob Gebhardt told the Milwaukee Brewers, anybody unprotected that you would trade for Bichette. And, and Kevin Reimer was the guy. They said, yeah, we'll, we'll trade him for Kevin Reimer. So they picked Kevin Reimer from, I believe, Texas and then traded him to Milwaukee for me. Did you, were you privy to that? Did you know that, that Don was getting the job and that he wanted you to, did he say anything to you or did this come out of left field? You know, Don, Don believed in me and I didn't realize it until he did that. When he did that and then put me in the third, I was in third, batting third opening day. I was like, wow, this guy really believes in me because I remember when he would work with me in Milwaukee, he says, you know, one day when you, when you figure this out, man, you're going to run this league. And I looked at him, I say, you really believe that, huh? He goes, yes. And I, you know, I blew it off cause I wasn't playing much. And, and a year later, or it's two years later, actually, uh, when he put me in the third spot and picked me and put me in the third spot, I was like, man, okay, time to get going. You know? <laughs> and that's when you kind of took off. You're going, you go to Colorado, you know, you're going to Tucson. It's an expansion team. You got a kind of a cast of characters, guys coming from all these different organizations. Was it different uh, than the spring trainings in the past going with that new franchise? Yeah, because the fans there, I don't know if you remember, the fans there were so crazy. We broke every attendance record. I think the, the first game was 82,000, 82, Yeah, I mean, Mile High Stadium, Mile High. Yeah. Is crazy. Sixty thousand, sixty some thousand average. We sold out for five years straight. I mean, it was crazy. So it was just fun. We weren't expected to win, but we had a like you say. We didn't. We weren't really a young. It wasn't your typical expansion draft. We had Andres Galarraga. You know, we had uh, we had some. You know, Joe Girardi. I think he got on that team early. We had some, and real quick. Uh, Charlie Hayes, and then we got Larry Walker. So we put together a really good offense real quick and some really good arms too, like Bruce Ruffin and Curtis Laskanik really quick. Within, within two, three years, we were a you know, formidable team. What do you remember? I, I, I think I came – I was at the oh, – let's see, in 93, I was with – oh, I was with the Mariners. Some I played a series at Mile High. I do remember. I, it was very early on for me because I remember. I, I don't remember much about it. You know, when you're in that stage of your career where you're just trying to survive and get hits because you got to prove to everybody <laughs> oh, yeah. that you belong. So I don't remember. I remember uh, dressing. I had to walk upstairs, and it, it was kind of down the left field line. And I remember the bleachers were really high in left field. But that's all I remember. I didn't think about the balls flying. It's not flying. Uh, that was kind of a blur to me. Coors Field would come come around years later. What was your first impression of Mile High, the whole thing? Because it's, it's obviously that football stadium that on the fly, they just build it for baseball real quick while Coors Field was, uh, Coors Field was being developed. 
Yeah, mile high was huge, but now the ball jumped. You had down the left field line, it could go out. If you hit it the right, you had, a, you know, there were some triples and things out there. Like I said, it was a football stadium. So you're, you know, they're fitting, they're bringing in stands with 80 some thousand. It wasn't a comfortable stadium because, you know, we had to run down the left field line instead of the visiting team to get to the, the clubhouse. But, but it served its purpose, I think, and, and got us going. Now, if anybody's ever been to Coors Field, that place is just, they did it right. And they did it beautifully. They did it downtown. So that was really cool when we opened that up. That, that was probably, that was worth the wait. Uh, your first year, you know, it's a breakout year for you at this point. You, you hit 310, 21 homers and 89 ribbies. You hit the first Rockies homer. I was, I, I found that out and you hit it off saves. <laughs> Brett Saberhagen. Um, Coors Field, it's being developed. You, you always see, I, I never got to, I was never on a, on a team where a, a stadium was being built. You, you had a couple different cause you were in Cincinnati when they were tearing that down, but did they ever take you guys, a handful of you guys, why Coors was being built, go over and, and, and hit before it was done? Did they, did they, well, I guess the question is, did they ask for any of your input? No, I don't remember them asking at all. Um, they made it big. They knew they had to make it big. It's a big yard, even though it's still, you know, there's nothing you can do. I mean, the ball, you know, one thing about quarter field, people don't realize what's going on there. They think the ball, you just pop it up and it's gone. And it actually is a big yard. It, it, what happens there is the breaking balls don't break. You know, and so so you go there and guys, they abandon their breaking ball, their sinker, their changeup, and they try to pitch with pitches they don't normally pitch with because they don't really get a lot of movement. So there's a lot of hard contact there. And it's really good to hit there, but as a home team, it is one of the most difficult places to come out of and hit. And now they finally have realized that. I told them for years, even when I was their hitting coach, I said, you, you got to figure out a way to get guys to see – stuff that moves before they go on the road because when they go on the road it's like they they went to a different league so anyways that Coors Field is is if people would just realize it's just it's its own unique place and it's a blast it's just a lot more baseball than what you're used to but it's still baseball I think you make a good point too it's it's the mental effect that it has on you too especially from a pitcher I remember coming in there with with other teams and the pitchers are like, oh, I'm going to miss my start Coors Field. I think for the guys, it takes a special pitcher, especially at the beginning of Coors Field when when it was kind of new to everybody and, and and people didn't know, you know, how it was going to play out. Did you find that it took a special personality, a special type of demeanor from a pitching standpoint to to take the mound every fifth day and, and kind of get through that season? I did. I did. I felt like it took a real – not a real loose guy, a guy that really wasn't in it to be great, a guy that was just in it to, uh, you know, Kevin Ritz, if you ever met him, Curtis Laskanik, if you ever met him, you know, they're not, they're not high-stressed people, man. They're okay. I remember Kevin, Kevin Ritz telling me, he said, Dante, I'm throwing inside. If they hit it out, I'm throwing it right back inside. I don't care. That's just how I'm going to pitch. And he gave up some homers, and he had like a four-something ERA, but I think he won 17 games for us. And and that you just kind of had the you had to have a little bit of I really don't care. It's not that big a deal. I just want to win attitude. And some guys have it, and some guys have to 
you know, they really are worried about their numbers and, and, and it really gets to in their head. I had one reliever, big time reliever come in and I'm not going to tell you who it was, but he came up to me before the game. I didn't even know him. He said, he said, this place is really tough to pitch, huh? And I'm, I'm and I look at him and I'm like, oh, you know, I start stumbling over my words and we're facing this guy tonight. Well, that night, he walked the bases loaded and I hit a grand slam. (laughs) I was like, if you don't walk the bases loaded, it's not that tough to pitch, but he was totally, you could tell it was, uh, it was in his head, you know? And, uh, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a different place. Uh, 1994. I think that's a year before Coors opens. Uh, you're an all-star for the first time. You hit 300 again, you know, uh, you end up hitting 306 years in a row. And, you know, for, for the baseball fans out there, course field or no course field, 300 is no joke at the, at the big league level. And to do it six years in a row is all pretty darn impressive. Five years in a row, you drove in over a hundred. Um, I'm going to get to 95. You're an all-star. You, you win a silver slugger award. You lead the league in hits. Uh, you lead the league in homers. You lead the league in ribbies. You only hit 340, so you couldn't beat Tony Gwynn for the batting title. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I mentioned this too. to you because, you know, I, <laughs> you and I have got to know each other a little bit more. Uh, but my teammate is the one, and, and I love him, and he was my double playmate for a while, and it was Barry Larkin, and he won that MVP. and in 1995, but I always remember thinking, wow, I wonder how Dante's feeling right now because, you know, I'm looking at the numbers. I'm like, he's leading the league in three categories and, and you come in and he's a second place, you know, uh, that's a tough, that's a tough pill to swallow. And, and I think that year you guys went to the postseason as well, if I'm not mistaken, you end up playing the Braves. Yeah. And I had a monster set. You know, what happened there to me is the media, I did not hit a home run on the road the first half, and the media caught a hold of that, and they just said he's just a course field inflated hitter, and and they and nobody nowadays they would have figured this out, but I actually I think he either led or was second and home runs in on the road in the second half, but I didn't even know I hadn't had a home run on this in the first half, and it and when it came out, it just blew up, and. I remember the next game I played, I hit one out just out of pure determination, I think, and uh, on the road. But, it, it, you know, they, that was the Coors Field jinx right there. Or not jinx, but just we're not going to let Coors Field numbers uh, uh, win the MVP. I think Matt Holliday probably got got screwed there a year. Um, but, yeah, you know, I mean, it was a fun year. I did get, I did get voted that year as the Players' Choice Award. Uh, by the players and I actually felt that was a little more uh, there's more respect in that award if your your peers vote for you so that was kind of neat it is and that's that's the truth right there you know people because we play this game uh, and as you know all we can do is go out in the field and do what we can do. And then it's out of our hands for, for these, for these votes, you know, it's like now it's in the yeah. hands of, of, of the press, or, you know, of the reporters of the, of the beat writers. Um, but you're right. It, it's a little more special when your peers vote for you because they're on the ground and they know what's really going on. You know, we know as well as I, mean, I remember we used to get, we'd get that, you know, every year at the end of the year, they pass out the, the players ballots and I don't know about you, but 
I would grind on those. And I, I didn't care whether I liked you, didn't like you, didn't like the way you walked, didn't like the way you talk. It didn't matter. Or if I loved you, I knew those things are, so, I took them so serious because we only have a short time to play and I don't want to ever write down a name without really going through it. And that being truly what I think it was, because I think they are important and I think you should take them serious. So you're right. When you get voted by, by your teammates, I, I, teammates and peers, uh, I think that's the ultimate as uh, the ultimate award as far as I, it, maybe it's not as uh, prestigious and, and it doesn't, you know, they're not on your mantle, but uh, yeah, they're, they're the coolest. They're the coolest ones. I think for sure. Uh, 1996, uh, you have another great year. You're an all-star again. You go 30-30, driving 140-41. At this stage, I mean, you become, you know, you're kind of a superstar in the game. Uh, It's you, Galarraga, Vinny, and uh, Larry Walker. And and I remember coming to Coors Field, it's the Blake Street Bombers, and you guys did bomb. Uh, Did that kind of take a on a life of its own. Do you have fun with that? I, th- I think it, that would be kind of a, a, a cool thing to have a good time with. Yeah. It, 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 for a couple of years there, two, three, four years, I guess it was, it was, we kind of just had the mojo where if we're down three or four runs, this game is not over. I mean, we, we, we had, there was so many come from behind Boy, once we start hitting them out, you know, boom, here we come. Bah, bah, bah. And we were just tough. You know, it, it, the park, it, I've always, I've always said when I, when I went back and coached the Rockies, you got to look at that 95 team and model your teams after that, because it was all about the bullpen and they just slugged. I mean, you got to just slug with people there, man. Let's go. Let's freaking smash it. And, and they, you know, they, they keep trying to find different ways to be tricky to win there. No, it, there's no, no, let's don't get around. Let's don't beat around the bush. Let's slug. And that's what we did. And, and it became a thing. And uh, we fed off each other. One thing we did do is we put all those guys in the last group. So when the pitching staff would come out and stretch, they had to watch us take BP. And it was, you know, that was kind of a show. And that was fun, too. So it was fun. I failed to mention this earlier. You did have the not only the first Rockies homer, you had the first homer at Coors Field. You still got the ball? Yeah, uh, I actually yes, I actually got the first Rockies homer. You're right. I did hit the first home run at Coors Field, but it was in a, it was in a game against the Yankees, and that one I got two. That was a preseason game against the Yankees, and that one's actually really neat because the guy who got it dove over the side and smashed his head on the wall and there's blood all over the ball. But I, so I got the ball and blood on it, <laughs> but that was kind of neat too. But I, yes, I did hit that first one. I think that was off of uh, Mike Remlinger in, in about the 12, 13, 14th inning. It was like 15 degrees. Yep. I remember that. 97, you had 308, 98. Uh, you're an all-star again. 331. You lead the league in hits that year, 219, uh, 99, 298. That's the first time. And, man, that, that must have been rough for you, Dante. 99, you hit 298 where you just hit 300 <laughs> six times. You, you must have felt like you hit 200. Yeah, that's frustrating. And if you look at my <laughs> career average, it's 299. Which 299, is really yep. 
Yeah, I get. I it's been a talking point. I can tell you that. I get asked that question a lot of times. You know how that is. I mean, if you got a chance, one more hit. I mean, come on. But uh, yeah, that's that's the way it goes sometimes. I, I actually didn't know I was a career two ninety nine hitter when I retired. I wasn't watching, and I probably would have took taken a shot and played because I I retired in spring training, and I also was a four ninety nine slugging percentage. So I. I might have taken a shot to see if I get hot at the beginning of the season and then may retire, but I, I didn't even know. After the 99 season, uh, you get traded to the Reds. What, what was – how did that come to be? I mean, it's not like you had a, a bad year. I mean, you had 34 and you, you drove in 133. How did that come to be? What do you remember about that? And with all the success you had, and, and probably at this stage of your life, you're thinking – I'm just a Rocky. That's what I am. And the fact that now I'm moving on, I mean, all good things come to an end, but it seems to be coming off a year like that. Um, how did that come to fruition? Well, that was when a new GM took over and there was a lot of changes being made and he came to me. We talked about it and, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to, we weren't going to win. I don't think anytime soon. So I was going to chase, you know, that team, that Cincinnati team, that's when Griffey got traded over there. Sean Casey was over there. Dimitri Young, Barry Larkin, um, missing somebody. Who am I missing? I'm missing. Well, your Aaron was there. So Aaron was there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm missing some other people. Who was it? Second Pokey Reese. Pokey Reese. Can you, Pokey Reese was it short. Oh, that's because oh, Barry no, was Pokey hurt. Was Barry, second. Barry Larkin was, he was at short. Okay. But that okay. team was really good. That team was supposed to, to, to win that year. And every single one of us got off to just the most horrible start and then picked it up late. So we didn't quite get there, but you know, that's back in the days when you had to win the whole season. You, you had no, no wild cards, man. <laughs> And that was the year I remember coming to play you guys. And, and I brought it up to you the other day. I said, uh, Dante, tell me about hitting homers one-handed. For those of you out there listening <laughs> to the Boone podcast today, this man right here, he's like a he's like a, a, a carnival guy. I come out to <laughs> – I come in as a visitor. I think I'm playing for the Padres. And uh, what you typically do is you come out, you know, and you stretch before batting practice. And the home team is finishing up their – they're hitting, then we go into the cage. So we're just sitting there stretching. And uh, Dante's in the cage. And the next thing I know, he's hitting one-handed. And the next thing I know, he's hitting homers one-handed, which I'd never seen before. Uh, first of all, how do you do that? And I remember I asked you, I said, don't tell me it was the lead hand. You said, no, it's that backhand. But how did you yeah. come up with that? You know, I'm a big Ted Williams guy, the science of hitting, top hands of power. And I took that literal. I actually went out to see which one is, and there's no doubt the top hand. It's like the forehand in tennis. You know, the backhand is not the power stroke the forehand is. And so I would actually train that way to keep my to keep, to keep really connected. And I, I started popping them out, and I remember <laughs> – I think I popped one out in just about every, every park in the uh, – in, in, in baseball that I played in, I know, I know Jeff Bauer, I hit one in the gray section in the Astrodome one day, which is like the third deck. If you, if you Google old pictures of the, the Astrodome, the third, the gray section's way up there and, he, and he's sitting there and he goes, man, I haven't hit one up there all year two handed. But I was like, you know, that it's, it's really not, if you put two hands on a forehand in tennis, 
you're not really hitting it harder, you know? So the backhand is really connected to the legs and that's how that got started. And it was kind of my, my trick, you know, my one trick pony thing. Well, it's something that'll, it'll put another big leaguer's head on a swivel. Like, wait a minute, what was, what just happened there? But I, I, cause mine did, I mean, I was sitting there and you know, I'm just watching BP. We're, we're bullshitting and sitting around and, and all of a sudden you start hitting one hand and it goes out of the park. And I, it, I kind of give a look to teammates like, do you see that? Yeah. I saw it. What, what is going on here? And you're kind of laughing because the other players, they're kind of in amazement too. Like, wow. We, you know, we've never seen that before. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I think in the middle of, uh, was it? Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of that season, you get traded to Boston. Um, yep. you end up having a good year in 2000, 295, 23 and 90. Um, what do you think about that going to Boston? You, you're only in Cincinnati for, for half a season. Yeah. So, so when we fell out of the race fairly quick and Griffey was basically hurt the whole season and we had Blarkin was out a lot, you know, we, you know, we fell out quick and the Reds couldn't quite handle that payroll. So, they dumped me pretty quick to the Red Sox. And I, I had told Jim Bowden early in the season, I said, because I had no trade. And I said, the Red Sox is where I met my wife. It is, she loves the town. It's one place that if you're thinking about trading me, that I'll go. And sure enough, I got the call. I'm in, you know, I'm in Boston. And, and the end of that, that year in Boston was kind of a lot of fun. They were in a pennant race and everything. And, and, uh, it was fun. And then I played one more year in Boston, Boston, a lot of cool thing. I met my wife at the, at the, uh, right behind the green monster at the gold's gym right there. I, I went to work out before a game and she walked in right before me and right in front of that door is when I met my wife. And, and last year, actually side note here, uh, Bo, my, my, my youngest son hit a home run that landed right the spot where I met my wife. It was the weirdest thing. So that's that's kind of Boston was always in the cards, I think. After the 2001 season, uh, that's that's the last season you'll play in the big leagues. I know you had a lot of knee problems down the stretch. Uh, and you mentioned earlier in the podcast that that you retired in spring training. Uh, actually, the next year, I think it was with the Dodgers uh, yep. was your main reason. Uh, was it the knees or what made that decision that that? you were calling it a career. <laughs> you know what? I was on my way to the park spring training game and my son had just hit a home run, his first home run. Uh, I think he was, gosh, I want to say six. He hit his first home run and I missed it. And I'm like, what am I doing? I pulled off the side of the road. I thought about it. I'm just sitting there on the side of the road. I'm tearing up a little bit. And I'm like, that's it. I played that night. I went to the park, played that night and thought about it the whole game, the whole game, just to make sure. And, uh, after the game, I just, I, I went into Dan Evans with the Dodgers and said, guys, I can't do it. And, uh, I'm done. And that was it. You know, doesn't it seem like, you know, you talk to athletes and not only from baseball, from the other sports. And they said, usually when you start thinking about it, you're you already made your decision. You know, because think yeah. about in the middle middle of our career, we'd never think about calling it a career. We're just oh, we got to wait till next year. We got to have a better year next year. But when it starts creeping in your mind, usually that decision's been made. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to hear the different stories from the from the different people around sports. 
great career, like you said, 299 career, uh, 274 homers, and over 1,100 ribbies. But this piqued my curiosity. 2004, you're going to play in the Atlantic Lake. Now, what's what's behind that? Were you bored? Yeah, I was absolutely bored. Bo, my youngest one, you know, was young. So he, I, you know, I said, you know what? He, I, I said, let's go. Let's go hang out and play some ball. There's nothing going on. I know a guy, but Butch Hobson was coaching the Nashua team. I'm, I'm playing in a men's league, and I'm throwing, literally, I'm throwing like 95 miles. And I took up tennis. So I, was, I had a big serve, and I started playing in this men's league, and all I'm doing is pitching just for fun. I'm throwing like 95, and I'm like, dude, I got to go see if this really works, you know, because I'm 40 now, right? I got to go see what I can do against professional hitters. So I called Butch. I said, hey, can, is there any way you let me pitch? I'll come up. He goes, he goes, come on up. Let's see what you got. And I fly up to uh, Camden Yards. I hadn't played a baseball game in two years with a bat, only pitching, because all I'm doing is pitching to my kids and playing tennis. So I go up there, just curious, and, he, and I throw a bullpen, and I swear about the tenth row in the bullpen, I felt my sh- shoulder pop or something, right? So – I didn't say anything, and, you know, after the bullpen, he says, listen, I'll give you some games. You know, you got a good arm. He said, I'll give you some games if you DH for us. And I said, you're on. He goes, okay, you're in the lineup at 7 o'clock tonight. (laughs) So the first – this is a funny one because I had not not seen a live pitch in two years. The first ball I swung at, I I hit a mile, and – I was like, I was, I was at, I was at the plate. I said, you know what? I'm getting a fastball, man. Just don't miss it because you haven't hit a ball in two years. I hit this thing a mile out of the yard. I think I struck out the next seven times before I finally could recognize a breaking ball. And then, and then actually had a fun time. I think I played 40 games or something like that. 50 games. It was fun. And I didn't, I pitched a couple games. My arm was so bad. I, I did something to it. I just, I didn't really pitch much. And, and you're just, you're kind of on an adventure now because 2005, and oh, I, yeah. I, this takes me back to my little league days. Um, when I was little, we had, I was coming out of Medford, New Jersey, and we had a really good little league team. I think we got to the state finals, uh, you know, with that, <coughs> excuse me, that quest to get to the, the little league world series. You, your, your son, Dante Jr., made it to the to the Little League World Series in 2005. First of all, how many games do you have to win? I'm sure you were there with them every step of the way. Uh, yeah, to get there? I, it seems like you got it, – it seems way harder than winning the, uh, the World Series in the big leagues. Absolutely, because y- y- there are more teams. <laughs> I mean, there are way more teams that start out in this thing, right? And then you, you can't – you really can't lose. I mean, you – I think we won 21 straight games to get there. I'm not sure. Uh, when we got there, I, we did lose. You do get too lot. And I think you're out. I don't I forget now. We lost to California, and they ended up losing to Hawaii. But I think we placed third or something. But, but yeah, you had to win 21 games going through the state of Florida, and then you had to play Georgia, and then you had to play – Shoot, I don't know to get there, but it was it was a lot of games, and it was a blast. I mean, it was a blast. I had a bunch of really good kids that we and we just we just 
we made them swing the bat so many times and throw so many baseballs. They could not, you know, they had no choice but to perform. You know, they had never worked that hard in their life. So it was a fun summer for those kids. Well, I remember around around 2005 because I'm hearing that name, Dante Bichette, and they said, no, it's his son. He's in the Little, Little League World Series. And then, you know, because anytime a big leaguer has a son that goes to Little League World Series, and there's been a few throughout the years, it's always a big deal that, you know, the, the ESPN and MLB, they're going to make it a big deal. And when Dante came back, Dante Jr., from that experience and, and getting a lot of pub, uh, was that easy for him? All of a sudden, he's going back to probably middle school, right? And now he's kind of yeah. like yeah. big-time celebrity. It's not dad's a celebrity. Now junior's the celebrity. Yeah, well, it was. I'm sure it was fun for a lot of the kids. But, you know, with that, with that in our world today, with the social media, a lot of negative comes with it, too. You know, so that was – we had to be real careful with all that. But it was fun for the most part. Um, I remember – I remember being walking behind some kids and at the Little League World Series and, and you know, little kids say, hey, that's Dante Bichette Jr.'s dad. Like, you know, <laughs> it's no longer Dante Bichette. I'm just Dante Bichette Jr.'s dad. So it was fun for him to kind of get the spotlight and, and, and do so well. That was that was a blast. Uh, 2012, um, become the Rockies hitting coach. Jim Tracy's the skipper. Um, and, and I know by talking to you, you really, you, you love talking, hitting, you love the, the, the madness behind hitting the thought process, going through the, the approach, everything. Obviously you have a, had a love for it. Um, 2012, when you go to the Rockies, because I, I, I've never coached at the big league level. I coached a little bit in the minor leagues. I really enjoyed that part, that teaching part. But as you as you and I both both well know, being in the big leagues, it's supposed to be a time where you're a big leaguer, you're ready to go. The minor leagues is yeah. for teaching. The big leagues is we expect you to be a polished, finished product. And hitting yeah. coaches are there to guide you. I just look at the hitting coach thing. Man, it's tough. There's no way to mm-hmm. win. No matter how good you are no matter how bad you are, you're going to get blamed when those kids, when they, when the guys don't hit and you're going to get zero praise when they rank. Yeah. You knew that going yeah. into 2012. You, you, you've seen it enough. Yeah. Did you enjoy yeah. that? And I think it was, it was, yeah, I think it was 2013 and Walt Weiss. I know was the manager just so you know, <laughs> but, um, Oh, yeah. am I off a year? You're off a year, I think. I think it was 2013. I know Walt Weiss. Well, you, you, Dante, you've got to know this. All right. So Walt, Walt's the skipper. So Jim Tracy was there in 12. Okay. So I'm off here. It it doesn't matter. I want to know the hitting coach. It's no biggie. No biggie. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right. And here's what I've, here's what I learned. Here's what you learn as a big league hitting coach is yes, it's the toughest job in all of the coaching. Okay, even the managers got it easy compared to the hitting coach. Pitching coach works with a bullpen every day, works with starting pitching, whatever. He's got a couple of bullpen. He's good. You've got about 14 guys that need to get right today. 14. You're in the cage all day. You don't see daylight from the beginning of spring until the end of the season because you're in the cage. And no matter how good your team is, there's always four guys going good or four guys that are okay. And then four guys that are struggling. 
You know, and I don't care how good. It's not the same guys, but you always got guys struggling from the first day to the end, and that's the guys you're more worried about. So you feel like, as a hitting coach, you're always struggling to make to get somebody right. You don't have to worry about the guys raking. So it's not it's it's so performance performance oriented, not like the minor leagues. I totally agree. Minor leagues is fun, man. You're teaching people something. But uh, the big league is about getting it done. So it's high stress, high, high, high stress anxiety for these kids trying to figure it out. Like you remember it was for us too. And, uh, and the hidden coach, nowadays they've given the hidden coach a little help. They'll give them two or three guys a throw and stuff like that. They'll have a swing guy, a, 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 a game plan guy, you know, they'll have two or three guys down there. I didn't have that. I had, you know, me and maybe the bullpen catcher would help, you know. But it's different. You already had one experience with with uh, Dante Dante Junior, but in in 2017 you got Dante and Bo. Uh, both your boys played for Team Brazil. Uh, what do you remember about that? And it, it's kind of I mean I, I look at the whole picture. You know, I obviously come from a baseball family, and and I'm I'm having the joy of watching my my oldest boy, you know, battle it out in a ball. Um, yeah. And I want to I want to get to that a little bit later. You've had a pretty cool life as a dad, man. You you got that little league experience, uh, and and we'll get to this too in 2020. You know, you're working with your son. Bo is obviously the shortstop of the Toronto Blue Jays currently, um, but in 2017 getting to see both your sons playing for team Brazil. You're kind of a pretty lucky dad at this point. Yeah, it was really cool. And uh, I'm not sure. Maybe they'll do it again. I don't know, but it was really, really neat. And it was really, it was good for their, their mom who's Brazilian and their, their grandpa on her side who is Brazilian and, and grandma. They, I think it made their world, you know, um, to, for them to do that. And, and my boys, both of them, especially my older son, Dante Jr., he loves, he, when he got signed with the Yankees, he, he spoke com- and didn't speak a lick of Latin going in, spoke complete Spanish within the first, uh, first year of playing pro ball when he played at uh, the Gulf Coast League which is mostly all Dominican and Latin players. When he came home, he was fluent and he's, he's been fluent ever since. And he just, he loves, you know, he hadn't learned Portuguese yet for Brazilian because he hadn't spent enough time with them. But, but he just, that was a great experience for both of them. Bo's gotten pretty good at Spanish now and you kind of have to in the game today. I mean, that it's their way of life in, in the Caribbean and these Latin countries. So if you don't know it, man, you're missing out. And, and it's been great for Bo because the Blue Jays, you know, are, are, are a lot of, you know, Vladdy and Guriel and Teo and all these guys. So it's been, it, it's just neat to, you know, for them to, to have that experience, I think. And, and great for me too. I mean, I loved it. And they didn't make it. They almost made it, but they didn't make it. 2020, I think from a dad's perspective, probably the ultimate, uh, you're on that Blue Jay staff with your son. And uh, I think I shared with you that that I got to to have that experience the other way around. You know, I was the son. But uh, yeah. I remember in 1994, my father was the was the bench coach for the Cincinnati Reds. And it was I just got traded from the Mariners and 
man, I was very pessimistic going into that season. Like, no way my dad's going to be there and he's going to be on the plane. And yeah, oh, man, I'm an adult now. Ended up being one of the best experiences uh, of my life and one of my favorite years in, in all the years I got to play. Uh, he was so great. I mean, he was he was so professional. Uh, he separated the game and probably with his background and, you know, all the years he played, he, he had plenty of experience how to do it right. But it was amazing. I I'd, I'd, Those doors would open to that clubhouse and and he was no longer my dad. He was that he was coach and I was player. And when that when the lights went down and, and the game was over and we went out, now he was dad and we could go have dinner or on an off day, spend the off day together. Like I said, it was one of the funnest times for me as a son, and, and I didn't expect it to be that fun. You know, you talk to Aaron, he might have a different perspective when dad was the <laughs> skipper and Aaron was playing. But I can just talk from a personal standpoint how much I enjoyed it. I couldn't imagine being the dad. You know, I, I haven't talked to Bo, so I don't know how he liked it. But you had to be just kind of tickled to death to, to have that opportunity. I mean, that's kind of a dream. Not too many people get to live that out. Yeah, no, it, it was, it was special. And to see how he worked and, and, and to know that you kind of did a good job of, of teaching this kid how to, you know, prepare himself and get ready. And, and, and it was real easy for me to walk away this year because I said, this kid, you know, he's got, he's got a good idea, how, you know, how to get it. Now he's still young, right? 24 years old, but I can't imagine, I mean, your dad, there's no, no chance he's not going to get that right. Your dad understands this game too much. And I had the I had the luxury of playing with – I had the luxury, of the, uh, coincidentally, of being the left fielder. Every time, you know, they show the Griffey's going back-to-back when Griffey Sr. and Jr. hit two home runs back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Check out the left fielder. That was me. I'm chasing both those balls. And I actually oh, it's uh, Kurt McCaskill, of, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Yes, that's it's right. Anaheim Stadium, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I chased both, uh, both those balls. And but I got a chance to play with Griffey when his dad was coach there too, and I I remember that relationship was you know his dad was real good with him, man. I I can tell you I know why Griffey's a great hitter because I had to take BP off his dad, and his dad was the toughest. He was tougher than any pitcher I had to face. He just slung it in there, sidearm, left-handed, and and I mean it was tough. So I can understand why Griffey became so good. But yeah, I mean it was it was unbelievable. Uh, watching him, you know, break those records, some of the records he broke when he first came up and do what he's done so far. It's been a lot of fun. But, but you know, you're probably starting to realize this, uh, Brett, that you, you can't, you can't, you can't hit for him, man. And, and it's, it's, I wish I could go play for him, but because there's, it's tough watching your kid fail, man. It's, you hurt for them, man, and nothing you can do about it. So you just got to pray that they're ready and they do the best and let them go. And and to touch on that Griffey story, uh, I had uh, Ken Senior as a hitting coach two separate times. I wouldn't. I got to a point where I would, if he was throwing, I wasn't hitting. I say, Kenny, this is <laughs> this is no district. I mean, I look at it this way. I wouldn't want to hit off me. You've never seen me throw BP, but I'm horrible. Kenny, you're right. You're not, you're not candy coated. He was no good. And I wouldn't even hit off him, but I said, this is just not good for my swing. And I, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or piss anybody off, but you're right. He, he was horrible. Um, your experience as a hitter, you're a great hitter. 
we just talked about you recently being a hitting coach. When you went into that, because we, you know, you you came up in 1988. It was different than it is now. Bringing that those old ways, combining it with the new ways, the technology, everything at our fingertips. How did you combine the two? Did you give a little from here and a sprinkle here, or I'm just interested yeah, to know, you know how you how you went into it? Yeah, you know it's uh, it's it's tricky, and it's even gotten. Uh, I want I don't want to say worse, but it has. It's gotten worse even since 13, uh, to where they just throw numbers at players now. Here's the numbers. Here you, you're striking out too much. You're swinging at this pitch too much. You're doing that too much. I mean, the numbers. And, and to me, it's a little bit like taking your car to the mechanic, but, but the guy can't fix your car. He can only give you diagnostics. You know, he can tell you, yeah, this is what's wrong with your car, but we can't fix it. <laughs> so, so to me, it's, it's uh, yeah, we got the numbers. I know I'm struggling. I know I'm swinging at that pitch, but how do you fix it? Okay, and those, and those numbers don't really tell you that. I think you got to be careful because you can, you can look at one set of numbers and they say this guy's raking and then look at another set of numbers and no, he's not raking. So what do you really believe? You know, I mean, and, and you can look at, I had, I had an analytic guy say this to me one time and it, and it totally hit me why everybody's falling for this stuff is the guy looked at me, he said, he said he had no idea, just right out of college, he's working. He says, Dante, listen, the, the ball that does the most damage in the big league is the pooled baseball at 104 uh, miles an hour at a 27-degree launch angle. That is the best hit. That's the one that does the most damage. Why don't you just teach your hitters to do that? And I looked at him, and I was like, man, the way you said that sounded so good. I, I almost want to go out and just teach my hitters to do that. But I have to, happen to have 30 years of experience that – if you're trying to do one thing, in other words, if I told a tennis player, hey, your forehand winner is the one that hits all the winners, just hit a forehand winner, well, pretty soon they'd just be hitting everything to his backhand. And I don't think people understand that, yes, a launch angle works or a pulled ball works or, or exit speed is really good until they throw you a changeup or they throw you one on the low and away and all of a sudden, you know, Garrett Cole can throw that pitch pretty pretty routinely low and away. You try to pull that or lift that or exit speed that, and you're going to get in trouble. So the experience has to play a part. Yes, the numbers, they can be helpful, but the experience, I just don't think you can replace it. Anybody I ever learned anything from hitting about were really good hitters. I didn't learn much from guys who really weren't good hitters. So, you know, Dave Winfield's, Reggie Jackson's, Brian Downing's, those are the guys I learned from. Robin Yount's, Paul Molitor's. They really, I didn't even understand hitting until I got to the big league and got around guys who could really hit, you know. So that's kind of where I came from with that. <laughs> and I think too much information in the wrong hands can be detrimental. You know, I, I always, I hear all these analytics but there's no context to the analytics. It's just, it's just basically here it is. Okay. Well, you, you, <laughs> there's more to it than that. And we've talked about this, uh, you and me at length. Would you, would you like if, if, if we could just roll back time and, and we could have Dante Bichette, this is your generation. Would you like this much Intel? You know, I actually was a little bit, 
geeky like that, where I would want, I would want a little more in-depth scouting report than most of the guys. Like, give me a percentage of the, the stuff I would want would be more about what the opposing pitcher does. I, if, if I'm going to war, I don't care about intel on myself. You know, I, I, I know what I can do. I want intel on my enemy because I want to know what he's doing. If I, you know, in most wars, that's how they've been won. I don't care how big your weapons are, how many people you got. If you've got the right strategy against your opponent, you got a chance to win. So I want intel on the opposing pitcher. I don't necessarily want intel on me. I don't want to know what my exit speed should be or my, my launch angle should be. I just want to hit balls hard. I want to get good pitches and hit them hard. I know, I know what it takes to be good to do that, but I want intel on what this pitcher throws. You know, does he, does he triple up on a fastball or does he go fastball, fastball, curveball? Does he, what does he, what does he try to strike you out with? Does he throw up an end to set up low and away? You know, stuff like that is, is where I kind of learn how to hit. That's how I kind of learn how to hit. I kind of like the intel. Well, I guess I guess now because I'm not living in that. I'm not playing in this in this era. But with my experience, with my brain right now, I would I want everything you got. I want every piece of information you can possibly flood me with. I want to study it all, and then I just feel like I can I can parse it out, and I'll take what I need that I think will work for me. But I'm kind of I. I don't like if you just take it verbatim and, and apply it to everything. Oh, this is the numbers. Okay. Well, that's how I'll approach it. No, I need some context. Like it, like I said, I need some context, but I, I, I look at what the kids have today and they, they get their iPads in the dugout and they're what I'm kind of jealous a little bit. Cause I love that. And we always had to run up into the clubhouse and you know, we got the V we got the VHS and we're telling our guy, Hey, rewind to two forty seven. I got to see this before the, before the third outs made. Cause I got to go play defense. So I'm kind of jealous of it. I just, I would love as much as I could, but I'd, I'd take pick and choose what I think would help me in, in that, in the at bat, in the at bats to come. You know, I think that's, I think that's excellent how you said that because it's just the same thing with mechanics. You know, you remember how many guys probably tried to tra- change your swing, and in the end, you kind of had to figure it out. So just show me other hitters. I want to. What does he do? Why does he do that? But don't tell me what I should do because everybody's different, right? I mean, you, you pick out what you think numbers make sense to you. And I think that's probably how I was, I was too. I, I don't want to necessarily know what you think I should look for. I want to see what this guy does and how the at bat goes and I'll decide what I should look for, you know, but. The game 20, 30 years ago. Well, no, I should say the players. 20, 30 years ago, the players currently, you've seen both. What did they do yeah. better than we did? Well, they're just stronger, faster, bigger, stronger. Um, they probably train in the off season better than we do physically to get their bodies in better shape. They probably, yeah, they don't, they Man, I, I mean, moving runners and playing the actual game, of course, we've just kind of gotten away from that, running the bases correctly, you know, those kind of fundamentals. And honestly, they're not really even taught in spring training anymore. Like moving a runner, the leadoff double, that's it's not really a thing anymore, you know. And I don't know, maybe the numbers say it shouldn't be a thing, but 
you know, getting a hit to right field is pretty good too. You don't have to give yourself up, but you know, the, the, the players are better. I mean, the players are just physically better. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they're, there's not a lot that they aren't better at. (laughs) I would I'll I'll tell you this recent combine that we were both, uh, at together, you know, I was doing a segment out on at shortstop and, you know, we're, we're we're basically, (laughs) we're basically entertaining. We're putting some words together, cherry on top, but I'll tell you what, the, the, the physical, the physicalness of that position, when I was watching these kids, just the way they take a step, not even plant and throw. And these kids are 18, 19 years old. When I was 18 or 19, I don't remember that kind of arm strength and that that kind of physicality at the shortstop position. So I was taken aback a little bit, not going into it with any preconceived notion. We were doing a, a two-minute show. So I was just basically out there to kind of encapsulate as much as I could and give you a, a good spiel for the cameras. But it really hit me like, wow, this kid just took a drop step to his right and just threw it over there like at 100 miles an hour. I don't remember that when, when I was getting ready for the draft in 1987. Yeah. Do you remember the one pitcher was hitting 101 with the filthy breaking ball? Do you remember that at the college? Oh, yes. And, and like, no big deal either. No <laughs> yeah. big deal. It was like, yeah, it's, uh, it is crazy. The athletes, no, they're crazy. I mean, they're absolutely crazy good. But when, know, it comes it to you, when it comes to your kids, how did you approach that? And, and even to today, Bo's struggling. You, know, you call him or you wait for him to call you? Uh, I usually wait for him to call me. And because I know he'll listen when he does call, um, he's usually pretty good about figuring things out. And honestly, I try not to give a ton of information. You know, there's a few things I go to with him, you know, um, you get inside the ball or be aggressive, catch the ball out front. I just got to see where he is, stuff like that. But it's simple, just simple cues to get his mind off of everything. Cause you know how it is. You start, you start worrying about where your pinky toe is, man. If you, when you start struggling and you listen to anybody, you know, so you, you just, just to get things simple, but, but I usually let him come to me and, and, uh, and I, and when I, I raised him as a real dynamic hitter, like wind up and swing the bat, learn how to hit up here in your noggin, but don't let people tell you how to swing the bat. You were born with the ability to swing the bat. You're born with the ability to run. You're born with the ability to throw. Let's not worry about that. Learning how to hit is up here, you know, neck up. So that's kind of the way we approached the the hitting thing a little when he was young anyway. What advice do you give to the kids or to the, to the parents of the young players? And I'm talking the little league, uh, junior high, high school, because these parents out there, I've, I've lived it too. I did the travel ball and I coached this team and that team. So I've been out there. I see how everybody is. What advice do you give to the parents when they come to you? You know, I would, I would not, I would see how two, two things I would give them. One is the trick to getting a kid to be a really good ball player. If he's got talent, you see talent in your kid and he, and you want him to be a good ball player then he's got to fall in love with the sport. So you got to make this fun. Now that doesn't mean kissing his butt and making you know, have a party because he's got to be able, he's got to learn how to work and have fun working. But so you got it. That's a trick making the kid have fun without burning him out. 
that's a trick because you can burn kids out at an early age. But if if he he's got a little talent and he's having fun, you really don't have to do much else. They'll he'll figure it out himself. You played in the big leagues because you love baseball. Your dad did it. He's like, dang man, this is a fun game. I'm gonna play. You figured it out. The kid will figure it out if he's good enough, right? The other thing is, I would say be careful with too much coaching at an early age. Teach him to swing aggressively, run aggressively, throw balls away. Don't worry about. It. I mean, just. Just play so aggressive at top speed because you see who's playing in the game in in the game today. A lot of Latin players who are not overly coached are coming over. They're so aggressive. They they they, they throw on the run. They they swing with leg kicks. They you know they have. Look at Vladdy's hitch. Um, they're not they're not the athleticism, the dynamicness of them is not taken away from them at an early age. And here they are, man. They're you know half the half the big leagues is, is from Latin countries because they're so aggressive, and uh, it's kind of neat to see. So I just kind of tried to ra- raise Bo like that. And I would I I tell parents, video your kid at a young age, tell him swing as hard as you can, hit the ball, video him. That's his swing. Teach him how to use it. Don't change it. And you know, it, but a lot of times you get to a kid around seven or eight years old. It's too late. He's had three hitting coaches by now. You know. <laughs> That's a cool way of putting it. You're right. Young age, because that's all I I know to say to young kids is what should I do? You know, especially guys just picking up the game. What should my kid do? My first answer is how how long has he been playing? This is his first year. Let it rip. What do you mean? Let it rip. Is there anything to it? No, let it rip. See ball and knock the crap out of it. You'll learn later. You'll learn how to hit later, but we got to see what you got to begin with. I think that's great yeah. advice. I really do. I, I think that's great. Um, I'm sure you've been asked this a lot. People always want to ask you, a fan, what's it like when you hit when you hit a home run? You know, what's that feeling? Do you do you know it? And I said, yeah. And there's not too many things in life that are better than that when you <laughs> when you when you catch one. You know, but now being a dad, uh, you know, both of us retired. What's more satisfying for you, hitting that? Hitting that, remember when you said they loaded him up and you took him deep? What's more satisfying <laughs> yeah. for you now? You taking you know, him deep I remember, or, wa- or watching your son take him deep? You know, I remember when I retired, I was playing a softball game and I got a hold of one and hit it out, you know, 250, 300 foot fence or whatever it was. And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's in a softball game, a big league game, a little league game. It just feels good when you hit a home run. There's nothing like it. But but being a dad, there's there's just nothing nothing like you know the the desire and the for your kid to succeed and when he's trying to do something that's so difficult and to see him succeed like that that is a really cool moment you know so yeah I'd give up a few home runs uh, to watch to watch a bow hit him there's no doubt. Well, Dante, it's been a pleasure, man. I, I appreciate you coming on the show, and. Uh... As we do each and every Boone podcast, at the end of the podcast, we bring back the voice of the podcast, and that is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone podcast, neighbors and friends, and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. 
never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29 I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.